That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? We are gearing up for Hanukkah, Christmas, end of year celebrations in the Horn House, and I could not be more excited to leave you guys with one of my favorite podcasts of the year. So today on the show, we have Barry Zito, and some of you probably recognize that name because in 2007... Uh, Barry was coming off of a Cy Young award-winning year uh, in the majors, and he went on to sign what was, at the time, the largest contract in Major League Baseball history the next year for $126 million. But as you will hear in this episode, uh, what came shortly after he signed that contract was some significant adversity and a complete drop-off in his performance as a pitcher. So much so that the next year the Giants uh, made this unprecedented playoff run and Barry didn't even make the team that ended up going to the World Series. And you'll hear this story about sitting on the World Series float after getting this contract and not even having contributed to the team and so much of the, the head games that happened from you know, all the way through Little League, through college and the minors and the pros and so much of basically the the foundational elements of flow states, which is what made Barry so good at what he did for so long and how he started to lose that as he got wrapped up in ego and being the best and the celebrity that came along with his early performance. And uh, ultimately what we talk about is the the power of connecting to a higher purpose. And for Barry, that was uh, God. You know, for me, we talk about values and other things and, you know, the ability to transcend the self to really find peak performance as well as just sustainable happiness in life. So this is an incredible episode with, you know, a story that um, I'm so grateful that I got to tell on the show. But outside of that, you know, we bring this back to some pretty cool insights about how we can create flow states, not just in athletic performance, but in our lives. So I hope you enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed having him on the show. And uh, thank you so much for listening with us this year. We're over 30 episodes, over 50 some comments reaching, uh, you know, several thousand people an episode now and, and only growing. So if you like the show, please share it with your friends. Leave us a comment. Without further ado, here is Barry Zito. All right. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? We are here with Barry Zito. Barry, welcome to the show. What's up, Andrew? Great to be here, man. How you feeling, brother? I'm feeling good, man. Very good. And what's what's happening down in Nashville? Uh, you know, colder than where I'm from, Cali, but I'm still getting used to it after four years, unfortunately. Not as cold yeah. as you guys get it up there, though. And you just told me some exciting news about the family. Yeah, we have a third boy coming in March. So we already got a five and a two-year-old. And so now we have this now another boy. And uh, the, the house is getting crazier, man, but it's fun. I love that, man. Yeah, we, were, <laughs> we were rapping on that beforehand. I've, I have one right now. And the thought of two is just like overwhelming amounts of joy. And then like even three, like I literally get goosebumps thinking about it. So what is, uh, how, how has fatherhood changed you? <laughs> You know, fatherhood has been a really nice equalizer, I think, a balance. I mean, you know, my main issues that I guess we'll get into are, you know, are and were, you know, identifying too much with the end result 
of whatever it is I'm working on. And, um, and so, you know, that identity attachment seems to get a little, uh, it's a little looser attachment now because I have these amazing children and they could care less about, you know, any productivity or whatever I'm doing in the world. Right. They just want their dad. And, uh, there's something beautiful about that. Yeah, man, totally. I'm excited to really talk a little bit more about identity because you have such a beautiful lens into it. I was actually on a phone with a friend last night and we were talking about like how context changes and like until, and and Barry's also got an incredible wife, Amber, who I got to witness together deeply in love and amazing to see how they show up for one another. But it's once you become a husband and then a father, it's like before that you're kind of identified as like Barry. And that's how you experience things. And then now, at least for me, it's like when you're experiencing things, right? It's like you're a dad, you are a husband. It's it's this different context change of like how you think about things. It's no longer just you, right? It's you are connected to these people just intrinsically now. Yeah, that's right. And and I think the most challenging part too is, you know, as somebody that prided myself on my autonomy, you know, the idea that it there's a compromise kind of at every turn, right? When you're married and, uh, and certainly when you have kids. Um, but it's not fully about, you know, I'm getting my way every time. And, and I think as a single person, right, it's, what do I want to do? Okay. I'm doing it. Whereas now it's, what do I want to do? Okay. Let's have a discussion and see how that works out. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, dude, you know, I, when we first met, I got to hear a little bit of the story that I, I hope we get to share today. And I just remember being super wrapped, but I kind of want to go back to the, to the beginning and hear a little bit more about, you know, obviously I already told listeners a bit about your, your storied career in baseball and now getting into music and already doing amazing things there. But so was, was baseball your first love? Was that really your first passion? And if so, you know, when did that really kick off for you earlier in life? Yeah, baseball was something that I got into around six years old, you know, early. And, uh, you know, I just kind of went out on the t-ball field and ran out to the middle, the little chalked out circle in the middle of the field, even though there wasn't a pitcher. I'm not quite sure, you know, but I, I <laughs> came from a show business family. So maybe it's like I wanted to be the center, center, stage. The center stage, you know, but um, that's kind of how it all started. And, and so I kind of, so when you think about, you know, starting there, I'm curious, you say you came from a showbiz family. So what was your, what was your family uh, into? Yeah, my father was, um, he was a self-taught piano player and eventually became, you know, um, music directors of these amazing bands in, in uh, New York and then got asked to be Nat King Cole's road conductor. And wow. so he took that gig, obviously. And, uh, and then he actually met my mother while he was doing that. She was a young a singer who came out from California. And so, um, they met up and, and then eventually got married. And so when you were getting into baseball, were you also brought up to be musical or was that something you picked up later in life? My father actually dissuaded me from going into music. He always told me that you can't make a living in the music industry, which is kind of funny. And this is even before, you know, all the record sales went away. Um, but you know, uh, at that time I was already pretty excited about baseball, maybe two or three years in, you know, right. I was like nine, 10 years old, but he always said, if you master three pitches, fastball, curveball, changeup, they will actually send scouts, you know, to the ends of the earth to find you. Whereas in the music industry, you have to go bang down everybody's door and you need to have the right machinery behind you. Yeah. 
So when you when you talk about scouts banging down your door, so from the we started on the T ball mound, and so I'm curious if you look back at like your early career, we're talking about like little league here. Um, what was like the first moment where you realized I'm really good at this, and you were like, you know, like I can compete at like the highest levels? When did that When did that kind of shift in your in your head? Yeah, that wasn't until later. I was always kind of a fringe, you know all-star. I mean, I made some all-star teams as a kid, but I was always probably the last guy picked. Um, so for me, it really clicked. And when I was around 19, uh, I was only throwing about 80 miles an hour out of high school and I still got drafted, uh, because I had this big kind of special curveball, which was always my pitch. Um, but the following year I went, I ended up going to college and not signing. Um, I picked up about 10, 11 miles per hour in six months. And so, you know, once I was throwing 90, 91, 92 as a left-handed pitcher, that was when I said, okay, you know, now I'm throwing as hard as some of the guys in the big leagues and I have this curveball that, you know, I I feel good about the fact that I can get there. Yeah. And, and so at this stage, it's like, so when you, and when you added those kind of 10 miles, you're up at like 90 now, um, how old are you at this point? I was 19. You're 19 at this time. And so what was your relationship with baseball at that point? Baseball was, you know, my, well, my father was a talent manager after his career with Nat Cole, cause Nat died and my parents left New York, they went to Vegas. Um, and so he became a talent manager and for many years, uh, was, you know, directing bands, uh, how to have success. And so when I came along, um, we moved to San Diego cause my mother was a pastor in a church. And so my father really had nothing to do entertainment wise. And so he poured all of his focus as a talent manager into me. So it was unusual, but, um, in a lot of ways I was approaching baseball, even, you know, in my early adolescence as a, as a job, as a career, which was not healthy at all. Uh, and even an example is, you know, my father would tell my sisters and my mom not to talk to me on my start days. Uh, even when I was 12 years old, you know, don't let, don't talk to Barry. He needs to focus today. And so you can see how things became very unhealthy for me in, in relate to the game. Yeah, man. I mean, it's like, you know, that, that's a serious example. I remember even yesterday we were playing this new game with, with hero, our son, and it's called Golasso. So basically we're kicking a soccer ball through each other's legs. And so here kicks it to my legs and he like misses. And then we throw it back to him and he kicks it towards Mickey and it's going to the left. And she like moves the goalpost and like moves her legs to the side. So it goes through. And I was like, you can't move the goalpost. You're not going to get it. <laughs> and just like, and there was someone who was watching us and he was like, this is a very, great like anecdote of like mother versus father parenting oh but, yeah uh, all the time man it's like are we going to keep score in the basketball game or are we <laughs> going to have fun you know and it's like there's got to be a balance in the middle right yeah well so and how did so how did your relationship with your dad kind of evolve throughout your your baseball career so you know for me he was so involved all the time and and actually what I ended up interpreting from how he raised me, although he didn't mean, you know, any of this stuff to happen. I feel like parents, we always, we're going to screw our kids up on one front or another. Uh, I just feel like that's the nature of being human, but you know, for him, uh, a wonderful father, but he ended up kind of teaching me that I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust my own instincts, my own gut Mm. feeling, because you know, if I wanted to do something, he said, Barry, it's not that you don't know or that you're not smart. I just have 50 years experience on you. You know, he was older when he had me, he was 50. So, 
therefore, you know, defer to what he thinks, what he wants, and don't listen to my own intuition. And so that was something that I battled for many years and, and really pushed away from my father um, for most of my adult life because I wanted to be my own man. Yeah. And so like, I'm curious because I might not want to go into it right now, but what was the moment where you started to embrace, like, let's say kind of like your authenticity, your uniqueness as it relates to not just your, your baseball career, but even kind of your, just your life. When did that start to happen? You know, my father had a stroke in 2010 and, uh, it was literally within a few days of the most, uh, I guess the lowest low for me in my baseball career. So within a week, really, I was stripped of the two things that I identified, you know, uh, with, for my self-worth and for my value. So that was my father, right. Mm-hmm. And his opinions and everything. He, he was incapacitated for many months in ICU and, and then my baseball career kind of got stripped from me. And, and I was told I couldn't be on this, you know, this world series playoff roster that the, that I, that of the team I was on. And so that really made me who I was today. And it, it, it allowed me to, to seek my own identity finally after many years i think i was 32 when that happened yeah and i and i definitely want to cover that and i also want to kind of like go back so people kind of understand this through your lens and so so at what age were you drafted into the majors uh i ended up going to uh usc for my junior year of college and got drafted out of there by the oakland a's so that was uh, that was 1999 i was uh 21 at that to- at that time so i signed with the a's and then played in the minor leagues for about a year and then came up to the big leagues uh, in 2000 when I was 22. And first time you stepped foot into like a legit majors ball game was, was what year? Uh, the year 2000. That's year when I got 2000. called up. Yeah. And do you, do you remember that pretty vividly? <laughs> of course. Yeah. I think every guy remembers <laughs> his major league debut. Um, yeah. Well, in, so what's, so what's the, so for, because it's like one of these experiences is just so unique. You know, it's like, I've had people on the pod who get to talk about playing to 50,000 people at Coachella and just these moments. And so through your lens, like what's happening in your body, what are you feeling in that moment of stepping onto a major league ball field for the first time? You know, for me, it, it didn't manifest as uh, something where I had fear around it. Uh, and I think there's a beauty in, in kind of that beginner's mindset. Uh, I was just living my dream, right? Dreamed of pitching on a major league field my whole life. And so now I had an opportunity to do it. And, uh, you know, in those times when the, I guess the pressure's high or, uh, you know, the adrenaline's flowing, I don't think we're totally in our right mind. And I think that's probably for the better. And so, you know, for me, I just stepped out there, you know, completely fired up. I was going to give everything I had. And, ended up pitching really well that day. And of course, then after the game, it all hit me like, holy crap, you know, I just won a major league baseball game. Yeah, totally. And so to go out there, I'm, I'm curious about just kind of like the mindset and what you bring into it. And again, I think this parlays into like identity, but so for you in your baseball career, cause you know, in the early two thousands, when you really started to, to come up, what was kind of the mindset in terms of like, how, how did you show up and operate to do what you needed to do professionally at that time? And how was that, how is that serving you? And what was maybe the shadow? How was that hindering you as a person? Well, you know, I had my father who was kind of my main coach and he was always planting seeds as he told me, like, you know, you're going to be a great champion. You know, you're going to win 300 games in the major leagues, which is a huge pinnacle, right? That's kind of a, 
a hall of fame level. Um, and so I always had this positive reinforcement happening. And so I never got too deep or into the doubts or the fears. Cause I always had this person that I looked up to reassuring me. And so really with that, that said, and also that beginner mindset, I had nothing to lose, right? It was my first game in the big leagues. Uh, what were they going to do? I mean, pitch bad and go back to AAA. I was just there yesterday. And so there's a beauty, I think, to how we approach things very early on. And those are the things that I didn't realize at the time, but I, I tried for years to get back to that innocent, you know, fun mindset of just being excited to be on a major league mound. And that was that was really what led to a lot of my success early in my career was just the joy to be out there. And, and that was something I, I didn't have for many years later. Yeah. And so was that kind of the mindset as you kind of like work up towards you won the Cy Young in, in which year? Uh, two years later, I won the Cy Young. So that was 2002. And was that still kind of the mindset that was present for you is that you were just loving baseball and doing the thing? It was. Yeah. I mean, I just... I came up, I had this great rookie year and I got to pitch against Roger Clemens in Yankee stadium in, in 2000 in the playoffs and <laughs> the Yankees, the 99, 2001 Yankees was, you know, or 98, 99, 2000, I forget, but that was just kind of a, a three-year dynasty. I think they won three titles in a row. Yeah. And so being able to go in the Yankee stadium, beat Roger Clemens, you know, wow. um, and that was just. Uh, that was kind of me like realizing, oh, wow, okay, this is the best, you know, the best of the best. And I feel like I can do this. And so I had this confidence. Um, but at the same time, I was having so much fun uh, just being on the team playing with the guys or walking out to these beautiful stadiums that I didn't quite still know that I was up against, you know, the best of the best. I mean, all that stuff kind of hit me a few years later and, and ended up really taking me out for uh, for many years. Yeah. And so, you know, as you, you talk about that kind of alluding to kind of like this, this shift. And so I kind of want to work our way towards that. And so, so Cy Young happens in 2002. And then what is, what is kind of the shift where kind of this, this joy that you're bringing to the game, this, this lightness, this enjoyment, just kind of like, it sounds like a real purity, you know, appreciation of this thing that you really enjoyed. What, what started to shift in you that led you down a different path that started really impacting you? Yeah, I think what happened is that my ego uh, started to, I, I didn't used to define myself on the results of baseball, right? I was a kid, I was coming up, I was having so much fun just doing it, just throwing the ball. I loved how it felt to, you know, time that delivery up and release that ball perfect and hear the, hear the curveball kind of come off my fingertips with that, you know, that, that, that noise when your fingers coming off the seams. Um, and slowly my identity started to shift into getting the results that I needed. And so when I would go home and lose a game, uh, it wasn't just me and a couple other people that knew it, right? It was an entire city. It was on ESPN. And so my identity started to hinge on the results of the game and that became very toxic. And, you know, I think it all really changed after I won the Cy Young because now I'm like, okay, all these people are st are looking at me. They there's this adoration, and uh, you know, it, it came down to a spiritual thing for me. I, I never had a spiritual foundation for anything that was more important than uh, what I was doing, kind of in the world, right? Like work, career, 
and so there was nothing greater than my baseball career. And, uh, you know, and now I was being praised as kind of this amazing player in, in the major leagues by all these people and, and also living in Hollywood at the time. So just, just buying into the idea that I was very important and, uh, nobody was keeping me in check. Nobody was reminding me, Hey, this is just a game. <laughs> and when they would say that, I would actually laugh and say, no, no way, man, this is the major leagues and I'm the man. <laughs> so it, it, it got, um, very unbalanced, right? So I, I started pitching for approval every five days. I started pitching for uh, adoration. I started pitching for self-worth and, and uh, instead of just trying to throw that ball the best I could. And how did, how did you start to change as a person? It's like, you know, it's if for people who are putting this in perspective, it's like, again, you know, you think about getting ready to stand up to deliver uh, a pitch to a couple of investors. You get ready to talk to a group of friends and your heart starts to race and you feel that pressure. And so when every five days you're feeling that from, you know, 30,000 people in a stadium and then hundreds of thousands on TV, online, how does, how does this kind of attention and pressure start to change you? You know, you talked about how much, how visible you were. And I'm just curious, coming from this place of just enjoying the act to having it tied to, to so many of these intangibles, how did it, how did it impact your personal life? Oh, in huge ways. Um, I mean, you know, I just, and I'm, a lot of this stuff is kind of fresh in my mind. Cause I just finished writing this book about you know, this exact thing. And the idea of the book, I called the, the book curveball. And the idea was, I thought that all the success was going to make me, right. Fulfill me. Right. I've been dreaming of being in the major leagues my whole life, dreaming of a Cy Young. And when I achieved some of these things, I realized, wow. I mean, that was a quick shot of adrenaline, a quick shot of, you know, fulfillment, but it was certainly not lasting and it's not going to sustain. So now it's about what's next. How do I get the next high, right? The next shot of adrenaline, the next, uh, you know, the next fan to come up and tell me how great I am. And so I started longing for this approval in the world for this kind of mirroring back to me of how important I was. Uh, and again, this is all based on the fact that I had no foundation. I had nothing in my life that was more important. So my priorities were out of line to start. Um, but you know, it affected my personal life in drastic ways, right? I started chasing women in Hollywood and, you know, buying the fastest, most expensive cars and, you know, doing everything I could to be on the cover of magazines and all these things. Right. And my drive was really just, just to be approved of and, and to be, uh, to, to feel like I had some value in the world. Because uh, I wasn't getting it from anything else outside of my baseball career. Yeah, and you know, it sounds like everything really came to head in 2010. But I kind of want to take people through the events that that led up to it. And so, you know, in 2007, you signed, which was it was one of the biggest or the biggest contract in baseball history. At the time, it was the biggest contract ever for a pitcher. Um, pitchers generally don't get as big of contracts as hitters. Um, so yeah, so it was the biggest contract for a pitcher and, ever at the time. And so you, you head over to San Francisco and, you know, you've talked about the mindset and how this is shifting is that now it's no longer, and it's interesting, the, the terminology you use, um, 
you know, it's, we, we think about like flow states. There's this incredible book called flow by guy Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he talks about like flow states, which we often think of as these peak performance states, um, that we oftentimes think about, like it happens only when you're playing sports or when you are, you know, dancing, but it's that moment when you are not thinking about the activity, you are just completely it. So it's like, and, and of course for, for most of your career, like when you're on the mound and you're dialed in like the zone, that's flow state. And what he talks about in, in terms of the qualities and the circumstances that, that you need to create those flow states of being in the zone is intrinsic motivation is that you are doing the act because the act itself is intrinsically rewarding and not because of the result it will achieve. Mm. And so it's like you, and you framed it just that, right? It's like when you were a kid, you said just winding up, releasing the ball perfectly, that that was, that was like a high for you, right? Like that in and of itself was the thing. And you did that and you got joy from it. And then the moment that you start to get this external attention and results and then start to put value on that, then that basically inhibits your ability to just enjoy the very act, which is what makes you successful. And so it's, it's so interesting, right? It's like to create these flow states, it's like we oftentimes think about that we need to be so focused on what it is that we want to do, but it's actually like not necessarily what we want to achieve, but it's just the act itself and focusing on that and finding the things that we intrinsically enjoy for the sake of doing them. And when you do that, that's how you'll be most successful. That's yeah, that is, I mean, that's nailing it. You know, I've never heard that intrinsic motivation, but I mean, that's absolutely the shift that happened in me where I was going from enjoying the act itself to, I'm not going to enjoy this unless it ends up this way. Achieving and, something specific outcome, yeah, yeah, and that, I mean, I've heard that the the biggest reason for unhappiness, right, in 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 people's lives, is because they're basing happiness on these factors that are out of their control, yeah. and so that's exactly what I was doing. I was not only my happiness, but my actually my identity as a human being. I was allowing that to be defined by the results, you know, uh, of another human being sixty feet away, whether he hits that ball or misses it, and so. Yeah. I was so, strapped in tight on that emotional roller coaster, you know, every five days <laughs> it was, it became an absolute nightmare and I, I started hating baseball. Yeah. And so, you know, so we, so you signed this contract, you head over to San Francisco and that's a, that's a big, like when you say that it's striking to me. And so at what point did you feel that, that you were actually starting to hate baseball? <laughs> you know, when I signed the contract at that point, you know, I was, Again, I was single. I was living in Hollywood, had this big house up in the Hollywood Hills, um, got this huge contract. You know, everything was kind of fanning the flame of my ego and, uh, you know, kind of mirroring back to me how important I was. And so I thought that because I was very important and I may have been dating some high profile women uh, and, you know, driving these cars that, uh, you know, that almost like my celebrity was going to go ahead and, and get those games, you know, handled in the right way for the Giants. And, and it's, this is, these were not things I was consciously aware of. And I think that's the big point, you know, is that these were blind spots, right? Our ego is, is brilliant and very deceptive, uh, and can lead us down paths that we're not even aware we're going until later or, you know, or until, until a friend or, or a parent, you know, gives us a talking to like, Hey, what the heck are you doing right now? Like, you got to figure this out. You got to approach this differently. And so I, I didn't have anyone in my life that was telling me those things. And so I was just kind of being very reckless, uh, 
Um, and so when I started pitching for the giants, you know, I was so self-conscious, right. Uh, and self-consciousness is what kills us in performance. And certainly with the flow state, yeah. I was aware of myself out on the mound as this kind of celebrity guy, uh, no humility whatsoever. And just, you know, out there trying to be the man, right. If I get this win, then I can maintain my importance as the man. And, uh, the motivation was completely backwards and, you know, goes without saying, but it didn't work. <laughs> you know, that year was a disaster and the fans were pissed and, uh, you know, the next year was a disaster, even worse, actually, um, got pulled out of the rotation the following year and the following year was, was bad. And, um, you know, and so for many years I was just scratching and clawing, doing anything I could to pitch well. Um, you know, and I mean, it's just going yeah. in, and going inside of the mind of, cause we've all heard of the term of like a slump, especially in baseball. And so it's like when you are in that space, right. And you use the word self-conscious, right. And if you just think of like what it means, self-conscious, I'm conscious of myself. And it's like, if I'm thinking about me, how I'm being perceived, what's going to work, then I'm not necessarily completely focused on releasing this ball at the perfect time, right? It's like your brain has to consider all these other things. It's taking up more brain power on these other aspects other than the, the very specific thing that you really want to focus on. And so, you know, what, I, what I'm curious about is, um, you know, when, when you're in a slump, what was going through your head and how are you trying to get out of that? I was working, I mean, the, what was going through my head was, again, uh, I'm worthless, you know, shame, um, anger. Um, you know, I, again, I, I had no identity, like I'm more on a, on a spiritual realm, right? There's nothing more important than baseball. And so, which that went really great for me while things were good. But now that things were bad, um, I had nothing to turn to. I had nothing to lean on. I had no support system. I had no, um, nothing that could pour wisdom into me. And so, I just worked harder and harder to try to fix, you know, fix the problem. And I think, what is it? Einstein says, you know, you can't solve a problem on the same level that it was created. And of course I was doing that. I was, I literally put a mound in my backyard uh, of my home in San Francisco and I was pitching practice sessions off the mound before I even went to the field to then have another practice session at the field. So it's not that I wasn't working too hard. I was so panicked that I was actually doing twice the work, three times the work because there was no trust at all in my ability anymore. Wow, man. And so, you know, then we work up to kind of like 2010 as things are starting to go to a head. And so like paint a picture of what, what happens in that year with, with the giants and what you were going through. So after four years now of this seven-year contract and now, you know, at that point getting paid, uh, you know, 18, whatever, $20 million, right? And literally making four or five times as much as any other guy on the team. I was one of the highest paid players in the league. And I was the statistically the worst pitcher on the team uh, for multiple years, you know, while getting paid the most. So that, that was taking such a toll on me in every way possible. And so, you know, I mean, I ended up just coming into that last game in 2010 and I had a chance to actually get us to the playoffs. If we won the game and beat the Padres, uh, sorry, it was the second to last game. Then I could propel us to the playoffs. And so of course I put all the pressure in the world on myself to deliver 
failed miserably. Uh, the next day, you know, the other pitcher for our team did deliver. And I was told by the manager that I was going to be left off the postseason roster because there was four other guys on the team, you know, pitching better than I was. Um, and in ba- and in the baseball playoffs, they generally only take four starting pitchers, not five. Um, and so, yeah, so at that point, I, you know, I was completely, I mean, just numb, right? Uh, talk about my identity being taken from me. Now I, I literally was told I could just go home and watch the team on TV. Uh, and I was like, what, this is my team. What are you talking about? I'm at least let me stick around and, and, you know, stay fresh in case someone gets hurt. So I, I really had to negotiate just to even stay with the team. Um, and then promptly came home and called my father and told him that I was thinking about quitting baseball. And, and, you know, with the complexity of that relationship, I asked him if he would still love me if I quit baseball. Cause I honestly didn't know the answer to that question. Um, you know, acting as a talent manager, more or less, I, I felt that his love was very conditional. Um, and so, you know, he told me that it would not be a good base business decision, but of course he would still love me. And that was not exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> um, and so a couple of days later he ended up having a stroke. Um, and so, like I said earlier in this conversation, those, the two things that really gave me value in the world were taken from me. Hmm. And I mean, when you, I, I remember when you talk about, and was this the year that the giants made the run too? Yeah. So they ended up winning the entire world series. Um, and sadly, you know, there was a, there was a part of me that was rooting against them, uh, as I was in the dugout kind of being a, you know, a high paid cheerleader, basically uh, hoping they would lose because my ego was in such, uh, you know, disarray that if they lost without me, it, it at least would validate, uh, you know, that I was necessary on the team or, you know, that I was needed to win. And so that, that's really how low of a place I was is that I was actually rooting against my own team. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Um, and so they end up winning the world series and, you know, without me and, uh, you know, I'm just an afterthought. They don't even need me at this point yet. I still have three more years with this team somehow. Uh, and that really was the beginning of a, a complete transformation in my life, actually at, at the lowest of the low. I mean, I remember when you told me the story, I just remember, like, you, I think you might've even led into it. Like tell me about like the, the parade afterwards. Right. And like seeing all this and just having sunglasses on and, and being in the context of like a home, like a world series parade in downtown San Francisco. And the way that you told me about that moment of, I just remember just being so wrapped and like just a pit in my stomach and I, and I couldn't imagine that man. And then, so, I mean, when you, like, when you think about that moment, like was, when was the moment when you recognized that something needed to shift in you? You know, it was, it was right after I came home when the manager told me that I wasn't going to be on the team. Um, I, you know, I went through those next 30 days kind of going back to LA and visiting my father in ICU and coming back and watching this team and being at this game that I didn't even need to be at, you know, all of that was very traumatic. But when I realized that something was happening on a deeper level was right when I got back to my, my apartment and, uh, you know, my home after I was told I wouldn't be on the roster. And 
I was working at the time with a spiritual healer and I had many spiritual healers and gurus and shamans and all these people, right? I was always seeking a spiritual seeker. I tried so many spiritualities and religions for so many years because I had this inherent need, right? I, I needed guidance. I needed something greater in my life than what I was doing, even though I was having these big successes. And so, you know, my healer at the time was this great guy and, uh, I had been with him for a year and a half, but I, I promptly called him, you know, right after I called my father, uh, and asked him, you know, if he would still love me, I called my healer and I said, you know, I'm going to step away for a while. Um, I just gone through some pretty, uh, shocking news and it's going to be hard, but I, I feel like I need to go at this alone. And mm. that was the first time really in my life since I had a father that was always my coach, right. Always telling me what to do. That was the first time I listened to my, my gut feeling, my intuition wow. to tell me, you know what, Barry, this is something deeper in you that you need to listen to. And so I did that. And I mean, thank God I did, because like I said, it led to such incredible transformation. And if I just had another coach telling me, Hey, it's going to be okay. I would have never got to that point. And so, and what was, what was this thing in you? You know, what was this voice that, that wanted to be heard? And when you started opening up to it, like, what did it have to say? You know, uh, I feel like, I mean, I feel like God whispers to us, and I feel like, um, you know, call it whatever you want, our, our higher power, our God, our universe, you know, I feel like there's a whisper in, in all of our hearts. And a lot of times, most of the times, and myself included, we will distract ourselves, right? We will escape, we'll numb out, we'll use substance, alcohol, food, shopping, uh, video games, porn, you know, whatever it is, and we will numb out. And, and we generally will not hear that voice. Um, as well as we could if we didn't try to escape so frantically as we do. And so, you know, for me, that whisper, um, you know, became so loud, right? Because I ignored it for so long that it, it ended up being like a hit in the face, right? It, it felt like a car accident. And, you know, I was watching the circumstances of my life really falling apart. Uh, and so at that point, I had to listen. And I feel like for all, a lot of us, you know, we, we do ignore these kind of things, these whispers and these, these still small voices that are guiding us. Uh, and eventually, you know, a traumatic thing happens, whether somebody, you know, uh, gets sick or they're in the hospital or they're in jail or they're in a car accident or whatever, and they start to change their life. Right. We, we hear these things all the time. Um, and so for me, that was go at this alone for now. And, and let's see what this is. Let's really sit in the discomfort, sit in the tension instead of just continually always trying to avoid it, trying to avoid what this feeling is, this ickiness. And so, and one thing I hope is, you know, I remember from the first time that we, we chatted, you know, we, and we got into religion and, and I, I thought that it was really beautiful kind of how we navigated that, you know, we talked about, you know, being able to go into this. And so like when you, so take us into when you say that this voice, like what was this voice and what was it saying to you? It was just, it was just the idea of like me and this thing inside of me are going to do this together. And I didn't even know what that was. Right. And so when I went back to LA, um, when I went back to LA, I went into a 12 step program. I, I knew, I knew tangibly that I needed help on that level. And there's a, a 12 step program called codependency. Uh, it's called CODA and it's just about, 
you know, you hear a lot of codependency stuff in relationships, which, you know, codependency really is if you're not okay, I'm not okay. Right. So I'm going to do everything I can to change you so that I can be happy. But so I was really codependent on my, uh, my fan base, the the giants fans, the game of baseball. Um, you know, if the fans didn't approve of me, then I was not okay. And so the second step in the coda, um, which is the same for, you know, all coda, um, or sorry for all 12 step was, you know, willing to admit there's a power greater than me that can restore me, my, my sanity. And I was such a self-reliant kind of like going to bull my, you know, bullhead my way through this. I'm, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work harder than everybody else. I'm going to do everything I can to be prepared. Right. And so I never admitted my own limitation. I never admitted that I needed help, like real help. Right. Um, always self-sufficient, high achiever. Um, and so this was the first time that I said, wow, there's maybe there's something greater than me that can restore me to sanity. And I felt like I had to be insane to admit that. And so, you know, that's, that was the point I had to get to. I had to fall to my knees, so to speak, to surrender, um, to surrender to something greater. And so that really is what cracked my head open and allowed me to hear, uh, you know, what I ended up hearing from my wife, you know, in the, in the subsequent months and hearing it in a way that it did not scare me or, uh, it did not threaten my autonomy or threaten my, uh, my strength as a man. Right. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I was surrounding myself always with the, the new, the newest self-help books, right. The newest, uh, approaches to how to make your life better. Right. And it was always about, it always came back to me. Well, can I do this? Is my will enough? How am I going to figure out me enough to fix my life? Mm. But the problem is that I was the problem, right? So I'm sitting here trying to handle and solve all the issues, but I myself am the issue. And so obviously that was a self-defeating process. And so, you know, what my wife ended up telling me one day was, you know, lock all your books up, all these self-help books, because I had them all. Uh, I was surrounded on the bed at that point. I think I had five of them literally around me on the bed one day. It was during the following season with the Giants. She said, I want you to read this book. And I was like, okay, what is that? She was like, it's a Bible. And I was like, I don't, I've never really, I don't know what that is. Like, you know, I was not raised in church. I mean, I was raised in a new age spiritual church. So the Bible was never something we read, um, or talked about. Um, and so I do feel like it was very unique for me to hear the gospel, um, with fresh ears. I think a lot of people have been through things or experiences and they have preconceived notions. Uh, and certainly there's a stigma right in this country and and in parts of the world that, you know, Christian people are a certain way and all this. So I didn't have any of that. I mean, I literally was just like, okay, here's the basics. You're screwed up. And until you admit it, you, you can't get any real help. I mean, you know, um, I, if I could sum up, you know, the new Testament, um, it's basically just, can you admit that, that you can't do this in your life anymore alone, uh, that your own strength is not enough. And certainly I was at that point. Um, and so I was open, uh, and, and I got to hear this, this idea of the fact that not only 
am I kind of screwed up, but I, I don't even try to earn it. Right. Cause we're always trying to earn everything here on in the world. But the idea that I will never be able to earn it. So stop trying. And that was like, whoa, that was so refreshing, right? Because I feel like we all just put this pressure on ourselves to always be enough and do enough and, uh, you know, achieve this and, and accumulate that. And it was such an incredible message that just stop trying so hard. You're loved regardless. No matter how many times you screw up, you're loved. And I was like, oh, and I just got to relax into this amazing idea, you know? Yeah, man. It's, um, you ever heard of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes, of course. And so on the, on the top of that, what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of times, even the way that they still teach it in most schools, it's, they have self-actualization is the tip of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and kind of what you're talking about, right? Of this like achieving and doing and being to be enough, to be loved. And what a lot of people don't know is that, um, towards the end of his life, Maslow, formally amended his hierarchy of needs after he established a relationship with Viktor Frankl, who's the Holocaust mm, survivor who, who wrote course. Man's Search for Meaning. And he basically uh, realized that the, the peak of human experience is not self-actualization. It's actually self-transcendence. It's that the idea of actualizing the self is a fallacy unto itself. Because if your, your main goal is to actualize the self, then you'll never, you can't do it. Because as soon as you hit that peak moment of actualization, something new possibility will occur. And so the only way to, act to actualize the self is to connect yourself to something greater. And whether that is a higher power, whether that is uh, a mission, uh, a community, a cause, that, that that is really the only way to, to actualize yourself is to transcend, is to attach to one of these higher powers. And so it's beautiful to hear you talking about it. And so, mm. you know, you, you, you ended, you know, that like this kind of acceptance that you are loved, that this realization as you start to get into the Bible. And so, and so as you, as you open up to this deeper truth, how do things in your, in your life start to change? And then how do things in your, your career start to change? You know, I found a peace, a contentment that I had never had before because I stopped applying the pressure on everything in my life to be a certain way right? To allow me to feel loved. And at the crux of it, I feel like all we ever just want is to feel loved, to feel accepted, right? To feel approved of. Um, and so now I was getting all that from a source that was unchanging, right? From God. And so I was always looking for that approval and love from a source that was changing from the world, from people, from from, from my kids, from my success on the mound, from my music, from that is a, a, a failing battle. Um, if not in the immediate, you know, certainly in the long term. So it was not sustainable. Um, and so now I had what I needed and everything else was icing. Now I could go see the game for what it was. It was a game. I mean, yeah. Okay. They were paying me a lot of money. That's great. <laughs> But it was still a game. And so baseball actually became a game again for me. I got to enjoy it. And I, and I certainly was not perfect, right? Because I have all this feedback on a daily basis and it's certainly hitting all those old wounds. Um, so I would slip back into my old patterns. Absolutely. But 
I knew there was a way out. Now there was a door. There was a way out of the misery. And, you know, if I could just surrender every morning, surrender, recommit, surrender, surrender my will, surrender this, surrender my approval, surrender my need for all these things that I think will fill this hole in my heart (laughs) that I've been convinced for years and have had, you know, I've proven that it will never work, but yet I kept trying. Right. And I still try it. Sometimes I fall into those patterns, but I had a, a, there was a new paradigm. And so the way that changed for me in my career was it was beautiful. I mean, the following year, I had a much looser grip on my baseball goals. Uh, I still had goals. I wanted to win a World Series in 2012. In fact, I would read this um, this kind of treatment that uh, that I would I write. I wrote this kind of little uh, like a vision kind of letter, and uh, and it was about winning the World Series and contributing to the team's World Series in 2012. And I read it every morning. But of course, when I was done, I was be like. If, if that's, you know, if that's what's going to happen, I'm not so attached to it. Um, but what ended up happening is I, I got to, I had my best year in 2012 and I got to pitch in the playoffs and I went into these games again with this loose grip on my goals. Yeah, of course I wanted to win the game, but what I wanted to do more than that was you know, focus on the intrinsic motivation that you mentioned from the, you know, the flow book which is, I want to feel that ball come off my fingertips. I want to do that thing that I love to feel on the mound, which is when that curveball just snaps off the perfect way. And hey, if the guy misses it, great, cool. You know, I can't control that anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but that detachment almost from yeah. what was going to happen after I was already satisfied with how that curveball felt, that detachment allowed me to be so relaxed in these high pressure games and, you know, pitching in the World Series. Uh, you know, I got to pitch game one of the world series in San Francisco, but again, I was so detached from all of it. Cause I was just like, I get to pitch in a world series and, and, and whoa, like, that's so weird. Like I'm going to be on TV, like everywhere, you know, and it ended up working out and I got to be in the parade and people weren't giving me the finger anymore. They were saying, Dino, <laughs> you're amazing, you know? And, but again, I didn't put I didn't give that any importance anymore, right? Because two years earlier when I was in the parade and everyone's telling me to, you know, F off and do all these things, I literally would have given my left leg to have people say, Zito, you're amazing. And then when it came time, I didn't, I didn't need the redemption that all these people were giving me. I already had it from a source that, like I said, was unchanging. So great. You guys want to praise me? Awesome. I, I'm enjoying it, but I don't give it any importance anymore. Totally, man. And you know, what you're doing is you're actually embracing another one of um, uh, his name is so confusing. It's Mihai Chicks and Mihai. But in the book, he talks about another kind of context for flow. And what he talks about is clear goals, but detached from them. Because to create these flow states, it's not that you're just in the moment, it's that you have done the work ahead of time. So that you have clear goals, because when you go into like a ball game, like you talked about, you were working your ass off beforehand. You know what pitches to hit. You're in sync with your catcher. You know you want to win that game. You know how many innings you you want to get through. And so, to create these types of flow states, what is helpful is just like you're talking about. It's like I have clear goals, but once I'm in the game, I'm detached from them. 
Because if we're thinking about the goals, then I'm not think then I'm not focused on just my fingers leaving this ball at the very right moment. And again, it's like it's decreasing your cognitive load so you can focus on what's most important in the moment. And so exactly what you're talking about is again, it's it's that that aspect of of clear goals, but detachment from them is a really crucial thing that that people can apply to to all sorts of aspects of their life. And so Yes. Uh, that's brilliant. I love that. And you know what's yeah. funny? is people don't realize this and this might sound harsh, but I think people can apply this. Um, you know, the best players that I've ever seen, right. That I've played alongside, they literally almost don't care. And when I say don't care, it's not like, well, what do you mean? You don't want to win. It's like, of course they want to win. I mean, they're they're human. Like they're on a team. They want to win, but there is this detachment that is ever present in these guys. And you know, whether they go to the plate and they're 0 for 4 or 3 for 4 or 3 homers, they know that there's one thing they wanted to achieve up there, which was to do everything that they could in their power, right? To give their absolute best. And if they did that, they could walk away happy. And so, you know, when that other stuff comes, it's like, like you said, you're just in your own bubble. And it's the hardest thing in the world, right? Because most of us are paid based on our productivity. Most of us are judged (laughs) based on our results. So how do you find it in yourself to detach from that? I mean, it's very difficult, but the results are, or or, sorry, the, the effect of that is you get to be in so much joy just doing the thing that, that, you know, you initially wanted to do. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that one of the things that's so helpful here is because I think that it's so important what you just did, Barry, which is like speaking to like some of the resistance that people may be thinking about this idea of detaching from goals, but they're like, but yeah, but if I don't hit my sales goal, I literally don't get paid, you know? And so like, I'm focused on the result and it's the idea that again, to achieve your goal, it is more effective to detach from it. And I think that's what's what, what's so helpful about understanding flow at a deeper level is that like again, you know, if you're in sales and you are able to detach and just be in the moment and asking the questions that you're interested in talking naturally, you know, if you are building websites and it's like I know that this needs to be that, but that if I if I'm clear on my goals and I can detach from that, you will be more effective. And it's a hard thing for people to 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 detach from again because it feels like a little, a little, like they, there's a little less power in that of not trying to control everything so tightly, um, because there's uncertainty in it. But when you release into that, oftentimes, you know, especially in athletic, creative, like interpersonal pursuits, it it is actually what is going to get you to these types of peak performance states. And so it's, I'm happy that you mentioned that. It's true. And it's like, when you ask yourself, okay, let's say I'm totally detached today and tomorrow I'm totally obsessed with the goal. If you actually look at what are you doing differently on that day, as far as what you're like, what you're actually doing from minute to minute, it's probably the exact same. It's just psychologically, one is uh, way more of a point of stress and the other one's way more of a point of immersion into, you know, the action in that moment. Um, It's not like, you know, when you're detached from your goals, you're just like hanging out, like, you know, drinking coffee, talking to your coworkers all day. No, like, you know, you're still working hard. Uh, You're doing the next logical thing to get you there. 
And, and so, and I'm curious now, it's like, you were kind of like setting this up beautifully. It's because, so you just wrote this book curveball and it, and it tells this story, which is just incredible in, in greater depth. And, you know, I'm curious because you, you certainly didn't write this just for athletes. It's like, you wrote this for everybody and, and for people who like, what is it that you hope people take away from the book when they read this is how is it that you hope they approach their lives and their careers differently after reading it? I just, it's just the idea that, I mean, listen, I grew up in this country like, like most of us did with the idea that if I achieve, you know, fame, fortune, you know, whatever it is, you know, that I'm going to be, you know, happy. I'm, I made it right. I'm, I can sail off into the sunset and feel fulfilled. And that certainly was not any of it. And so the fulfillment came from some completely different place. And, uh, if anything, I was probably more miserable after achieving a huge success from feeling the pressure to do that again. Right. It's, and, and the human spirit, right. We're never, we're never happy with what we, with what we have now. We always want more. And so, you know, it is, it's, it's basically that idea of, you know, how can we get back to just enjoying the thing that we're doing, whatever that is in the most pure and innocent way. I mean, being childlike about it. Uh, and I think when most of us approached the things that we do in our life, you know, whether it was the first thing we were excited about it and then slowly we became jaded slowly. It started to wear on us. We, we gained a tolerance for the day to day cause we kind of knew everything about it. We learned that, you know, it, it really wasn't as exciting. And so, um, it, it was just, the book's really just a way to say, if you think this on the other side of the rainbow is what you're going for, it's actually not. Um, and I just, it's more just of what I wish somebody would have told me when I was an adolescent thinking that, you know, uh, everything was going to straighten out in my life once I had some success. Yeah. There's a great quote that I always come back to. It's, I think it, I think it's like a Rolling, you know, Rolling Stones lyric or something that says, um, everybody says money can't buy happiness, but I want to find out for myself. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. And you know what? And most of us do. And, and, and a lot of times you can't tell people something. Um, but you know, at least for me, if you told me that I, I would have not believed you, but I may have just remembered that somebody fired this kind of warning shot across my face. Right. And, uh, been like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm starting to see this now. Maybe, maybe I need to, uh, make some adjustments here in how I approach this. Yeah, man. And I think it's, it's again, the idea of, because I think it's important to, to address it. Like there are people need to work on things and, and do things to provide a level of security to support their families and those other things. And I think that so much of what we're talking about again is like to tap into these states of deeper fulfillment, that those are available to us, you know, through connecting to a higher power, that those are available to us by finding the things that, that actually we enjoy in the moment, like the thing that we love for the sake of doing it, you know? And it doesn't even necessarily need to be your, your full-time career. It's just that it can be a part of what you do professionally. It can certainly come into you know your social life and the time that you do control, the time you control with your loved ones and your families. And um, so I think that, again, to, to have been able to go on the, the journey that you have and to come away with that message you know, and to tell it, um, I think is really beautiful. Man. And, I'm, and I'm really hopeful that, that people take it to heart. <laughs> Well, that's cool, man. I appreciate it. And I think, you know, I remember this, um, this 
this idea of the, uh, the Zen Buddhists, you know, they would make these Zen gardens and spend, you know, weeks, if not months creating this most perfect, you know, every grain of sand is in the perfect place, you know, with the little rakes and everything. And right when it's complete, they are, they literally erase it all and start over. And so if we can approach our life that way, that this is not leading up to some, you know, fulfillment later that actually I got to figure out a way right now to, to just know that, you know, this is all I got. And if just doing the best I can do today, even if I'm at a job, I don't want to be it. There is a, there's a pride and a beautiful thing of, I went there and I gave all I had today and I feel really good about that. Yeah. And so, and so I'm curious, Barry, so what, at this stage of your life, what are the things that kind of like that really just bring you joy for the sake of doing, what are the things that are lighting you up most? I mean, being a father is, you know, um, it's nothing I thought would have fulfilled me to the level it does, but you know, just interacting with my children on a daily basis is so wonderful and and there's no tangible result there, right? It's, it's only in the moment. Um, there's no scorecard or statistic (laughs) or rating. Um, but you know, that is a huge part of my life right now. Um, and then, you know, with my songwriting, it is really hard to not be result oriented, right. To write a song and have it demoed and you pitch it to somebody and you hope that, um, they want to cut it. And so I have to go, no, you know what, when I spent the four or five hours with those guys writing that song, that was it for me. Um, the rest, you know, I don't know. Yeah, sure. I can do without all that. You know, I already had my experience that I enjoyed. And so, uh, I'm still learning these lessons every day in music. Yeah, man. And so is there for people who are listening this right now, if there's anything that you think they could do or something, if you were to be kind of prescriptive that they could do to, uh, you know, actually, I want to, I want to ask one other question because you, you Mm -hmm. said, we talked about identity before, you know, when we kind of started the podcast and how you identify. So now, like, how do you identify yourself when before it was so much about baseball and so much about music? So I'm curious how that has shifted. Like when you think of who you are, what, what comes up for you? Uh, to be honest, man, I forget a lot of times that I played baseball. Um, I'll even go back to the Bay area and go on the field for these ceremonies and be like, wow, man, holy crap. Like I pitched on this mound. Those guys are so good. I don't know how I ever got them out, (laughs) you know? So I identify with myself more. I mean, I'm constantly listening to that voice inside to guide me and, and, you know, and I pray about most things that I do, most decisions I make. So I just feel like I'm kind of being guided, um, on a daily basis. And so, uh, that is really my identity. I'm just, you know, I'm a child of God. I mean, I feel like we all are, you know, we're all created by this, this beautiful thing that created all this beautiful, magnificent stuff. Um, and so if I can remind myself to not get so ingrained in the daily and to keep that, that, uh, the, not the horizontal, but the vertical connection, uh, then the horizontal just kind of slowly starts to become a little more enjoyable. There you go, man. Well, so for people who are listening, anything else that you would want them to, to take away from listening to this as they head back to their careers, their families, their partners, anything else, parting words? You know, I just, I just think that a lot of us, we have false idols in our life, right? Um, the things that we value the most, um, and I would just say the things that you value the most, you know, is that really a reliable, sustainable thing or could that disappear tomorrow? And if it can disappear tomorrow, then I would urge people to, you know, 
to, to seek and search for something that is, is in fact unchanging and that can't be taken from us tomorrow. That's a beautiful distinction, man. And, you know, again, and I think that when you, when you talk about God and how that's empowered you and like, again, when you think about something that's unchanging of like something that, that even came up for me was just the idea of, of love and, and being love and giving that freely. And, you know, something like that for me of giving yourself to something that is kind of unchanging and permanent and like whatever that is for you. And, um, it's really beautiful, man. And so you've lived an, an incredible life and amazing to see you, you know, being so of service and kind of supporting men in Nashville with your groups and being a great dad and father and now sharing this wisdom with the world. So um, uh, I'm excited to share this with everybody, man. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to, uh, to come on. And uh, so you think you got another book in here? Is this, uh, is it now back to music for the time being? Um, yeah, I think, you know, who knows? I, you know, I'm always being led, right? But I, I don't have any, I don't have any books in my mind now. But who knows what'll happen? I'm um, getting ready to start recording some new music to put out, and I had an EP come out a couple of years ago, but I'm getting ready to put put some more uh, music out there. So I'm excited about that. And uh, you know, 2020 is looking good, man. Exciting with a new kid coming as well. Cheers, brother. Well, happy to hear things are on the up and up. And so for people who want to check you out, you know, right now you've got the book Curveball, we'll link in the show notes. And then where can people check out? What's the best spot to check out your music right now? Uh, com, and same with the socials, Barryzito Music. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, the music will probably be out, um, I would say in the first quarter of next year. So, um, yeah, it'll be a good time, man. Who's, who's blowing your mind musically right now? You're in Nashville, so you're like, you're in it, man. Oh, man. You know, I'm such a pop fan. Um, I really like this new kid, Lauv. Uh, I think it's Ellie. Oh, yeah. Lauv is great, man. Lauv's great. He produces all his stuff, and I love his voice. And he's, yeah, man, he's blowing up. He's great. Yeah, I'm a fan. I just got my Spotify 2019, and, and my number one is Anderson Pock. You know about him? Uh, yeah, man. That's funny. <laughs> I've, I've been grooving to that, like, nonstop this year. Probably, oh, so. he's dope, too, man. Yeah, man. Very cool. All right, Barry. Thank you for the time, brother. Signing Andrew, off. Absolutely, man. Take care, buddy.